be turning to first timothy we'll pick our study up where we left off last week and go a little farther and i couldn't help but think my mind went back to um as uh he mentioned being with rock of ages for 10 years we've had a number uh come through and our numbers are not what they used to be in attendance with the bible institute uh, our first semester we were going to take a room we had uh uh, with with maybe enough for myself, Brother Bearfield, Brother Don Smith, maybe to teach five or six or seven, and 82 people showed up that first night. And so we moved to the sanctuary and been in a sanctuary ever since. But uh, my mind went back. It's been probably about uh, 15, 16 years now. One of our students who is a high school um, teacher and coach, uh, he wanted to talk to Brother Bearfield and myself about prison work. He had been down to Parchman with a group uh, two or three times, and he really felt like that's where he needed to be. I'll never forget this. Brother Bearfield said to him, he said, I know this is what God wants me to do. And he said, well, son, he said, all I'm going to tell you is you better know. Because if God's not in it, you won't stay in it. And he didn't. And he didn't. And I'm sure you see men come and go. And uh, I appreciate you staying with it. To me, that's testimony that God's called you to it. And uh, thank you for, uh, I've said before our church on a number of occasions, when, when a missionary comes through here, I want him to tell on himself. And you've always done that. And brother, we appreciate the way your heart beats for souls, for the word, to disciple, saved individuals. Thank you, brother. Thank you. We trust that God will continue to use you and also continue to use your dear wife, your son-in-law, and your daughter-in-law. Congratulations on the grandbaby. I've got seven, so you can't touch me, brother. <laughs> you can't tell me nothing. Amen. Let's go, uh, let's go to 1 Timothy. I want to do what we've done. Uh, this will be our fifth look at 1 Timothy, what we've done the last uh, couple of nights. Uh, in our Wednesday, of course, we're still very early on. I want to read the first chapter. I'm interested in the second division of the first chapter tonight. But I want to remind you of the divisions of this chapter. Chapter number 1, verses 1 and 2, it's the natural greeting to the book. Verses 3 through 11 is where we are tonight. It's our second uh, division. Verses 12 to 17, our third, and 18 through 20, our fourth Division of the chapter, there are 20 verses, of course, in this chapter, verses 1 and 2. You remember we've covered this. Give you a brief review in just a moment, but let's read it. There's a well-established bond connecting brethren here, verses 1 and 2. The opening remarks, the natural greeting. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Then here in verses 3 through 11, there's an obvious work in which Timothy is to engage in. An obvious work, verses 3 through 11. And we'll work our way through it here in just a little bit. Let's read the verses. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some. Now you remember those watchwords. We tried to lay some foundation a couple of nights before we actually begin with the text. You remember some of those watchwords that are in our text tonight. The word charge. The word some, which has a negative emphasis other than one time, I believe it is, in the pastoral epistles, the word doctrine. 
the word conscience, the phrase sound doctrine, the phrase a good conscience. Watch verse 3 and following. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be uh, teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, Your third division, verses 12 to 17, there's a personal personal witness of Paul given here. He gives us a personal witness to his calling and even even his salvation here. Verses 12 to 17. Now thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Then the fourth division of this chapter, there's a warfare in which Timothy is to engage in. 18 to 20, the Bible says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according as the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Simonius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So there you have the four divisions. Now remind us of the first division, Um, this this well-established bond that connects uh, brethren, connecting brethren, Paul and Timothy. We spoke of Paul, verse number one, Paul the aged, the elder. Verse number two, Timothy the younger. Paul the aged, we spoke of Paul and his apostleship, verse one. Paul and the authority by which he writes, verse number one. And then Paul and the affection he has for Timothy, as is seen in the phrase, my own son, in verse number two. Last week, we spent the evening looking at Timothy. Considering him, Timothy the Younger, he, of course, is um, 30 years younger than Paul. And we won't give any details of it all, but just to mention several particulars that we spoke of, leaving a few out. Paul, you remember we 
noted from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 8, Paul was not married, therefore he had no natural children. But uh, Paul uh, spoke of Timothy as his own son in the faith. Concerning Timothy the younger, his name appears some 30 times in Scripture. Timothy was saved on Paul's first missionary journey, Acts chapter number 14. He's a native to Derby or Lystra, excuse me. Lystra and Derby were twin cities, if you will, small village-type towns uh, that were in the area of Lyconia. Uh, concerning Timothy's family, Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother, but he had a lost daddy. His grandmother was a Jew, uh, his mother was a Jew, and his daddy was a Greek. We believe he was lost and a pagan at that. And, but yet God saved him. God saved him when Paul comes to town preaching on his first missionary journey. In Acts 16, on Paul's second missionary journey, uh, Timothy has grown in the Lord. And so Paul pulls him into his world and takes him with him on his second missionary journey. The Apostle Paul, uh, there were three missionary journeys in which he went preaching the gospel and encouraging the churches that he established in the first journey, encouraging churches to go out and start churches out in neighboring areas on the second journey. On his third journey, he goes back for expansion yet again and exhortation. And on his second missionary journey, his third missionary journey, Timothy was there every step of the way. He's been with the Apostle Paul. So he pulls him in to, to the work in Acts 16. We know from a verse in 1 Timothy and from a verse in 2 Timothy, you will remember we spoke of this last week, we know that Timothy was formally ordained. At some point, Timothy was imprisoned. You remember that? We spoke of that, noticing Hebrews 13, verse number 23. We know that Timothy ministered in at least some five New Testament churches that we read of, that's the church at Thessalonica, at Corinth, at Philippi, at Berea, and of course here at Ephesus. Timothy by nature was timid, he was shy, he was bashful. According to 1 Timothy 5 and 23, Timothy was a bit sickly. Uh, you remember Paul called Timothy, Paul the traveler, Paul the theologian, Paul who pins down all these New Testament epistles, Paul, who has seen so many saved and used of God, known throughout the region by those who loved God and those who did not, Paul called Timothy, bashful Timothy. He called him, but thou, O man of God, and it must have helped his heart as a young preacher facing all he had to face. Paul was there and observed so much in Timothy's walk in service with the Lord. He witnessed Timothy's legitimate birth into the family of God. He witnessed, number two, Timothy's continuous growth in his walk with the Lord. And number three, he was a witness to Timothy's increased use in the work of God. What a blessing that is. Then Paul's prayer for Timothy. I don't know if you found yourself praying as we tried to encourage you to do so, but I found myself praying it. The little three-word prayer Paul had for Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. I prayed that over uh, over a number of people since last Wednesday night. This brings us to the second section of First Timothy chapter number 1, verses 3 through 11. We may get this covered tonight. We may not get it all uh, covered tonight. But here's what it is. Here's what's going on in this section. Timothy's work is set before him. His work is set before him in this section. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, there's a storm to be weathered, number one. 
Number two, Timothy, there's a flock to be fed. Timothy, there's a gospel to be preached. And that will sum up any man's pastoral ministry. A storm to be weathered, a flock to be fed, and a gospel to be preached. Now, anyone that's called into the ministry and into the pastor, and I would dare say a missionary uh, to any facet, to any degree, that those three truths are paramount. And this is going to be a part of the journey. After Paul's first imprisonment, he traveled to Ephesus, and there he preached the word. They knew that two needs existed. He knew that he had to go on to Macedonia, and so he went and preached. And he knew that there were needs in the church at Ephesus because false doctrine was beginning to infiltrate, was beginning to make its way in. So he can't preach in two places at one time. So therefore, he leaves Timothy behind. That's the two moves he makes. And Timothy is there now, a well-abled preacher in his mid-30s. He's there now to preach the Word of God. And with Paul, preaching is paramount. Now, while I was listening to Brother Burnett a little bit ago, I, it's paramount with him. It come out on him a while ago. And I like that with any preacher. It ought to be paramount with anybody when it comes to the worship of God. The preaching of the Word ought to be. Paul had labored in the church at Ephesus for, as far as Paul is concerned, an extended amount of time. According to Acts chapter number 20, verse number 31, he labored at Ephesus for three years. You remember after he left, he then sent for the elders, come meet him at Miletus. And uh, so he gave them instructions that grievous wolves are going to enter in after my departure. And he gave them instruction as to how to combat that, and largely it was that of preaching and teaching the Word of God. By the way, Timothy was there when he met with those elders, those leaders in the church, uh, those leaders in the church at Ephesus. Look with me, verses 3 and 4. He says to Timothy, and he says to us, there's a storm to be weathered. You say, where's that at? It's right there in the text. Verses 3 and 4. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. There's the place of the storm, then there are the particulars of it. The place of the storm is Ephesus. It's right there before us in verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. Timothy's role in pastoring and leading this flock uh, no doubt would bring stability would bring stability to the flock. There is no pastor there. There are some elders that are there. We know that from Acts chapter number 20. But there's not a pastor that is there leading them. Now, you know as well as I, you let a church go without a pastor for a year. I know some that have gone without it. You let some go without two years. I know some that's without a pastor now for two years. There's an instability uh, that is there in that flock among the membership because there's no one there that's going to consistently come in and open the Scriptures. And uh, when they're finished uh, teaching and preaching the Word of God, they close their Bible, call on someone to pray. And then when they come again uh, to service at the next appointed time, there's no one there to do that for them again. We're compared to many things in Scripture, one of which are sheep, which are strange creatures, to say the least, if you know anything about sheep. Ephesus was a cross-section of many elements and items, right? 
there was a cross um, section of culture that was there. Uh, commerce was great. People traveled through. Idolatry was very pronounced in Ephesus. The one that gets mentioned probably more than any others is the worship of Diana. As a matter of fact, Timothy would lose his life for protesting some of the vulgarities involved in the street parades, in the worship and celebration of Diana. And uh, Timothy is, is put here. His role of pastor in this flock would no doubt bring stability to the people that were there. I'm going to borrow from Simon Peter's writing here to make a point. His preaching to this flock would bring a maturity to the people too. His preaching to the flock. Now think of Peter. Think of what Simon Peter wrote in Second Peter. It is the book of remembrance, right? Four times the book, uh, the book records the word remember. And Peter over and again four times in three chapters tells uh, those believers that were part of the diaspora had been persecuted because of their faith in Christ. He told them, remember. And the cry is, remember not to forget. There's some things that have been put in your hearts and lives and minds. Don't forget those. Remember them. And then there's the word knowledge. Some seven times in Second Peter the word knowledge, he keeps bringing us back to knowledge. I called him the Sunday school teacher. He might be the Sunday school superintendent of our New Testament. This is how he closed his little epistle of Second Peter. Second Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. As believers and disciples of Christ, we're all to take heed to what Peter said there, to grow, to develop, uh, to mature in the Lord. And so it was. That's part of the reason why Timothy has been left behind. So the place where this storm is going to take place is Ephesus. Watch verse 3 and 4 again. Look at the end of verse number 3. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, false doctrine, somebody said long ago, was false doctoring. In other words, a doctor giving sick folk the wrong medicine. That's what false doctrine is. Now, we took, I think it was the second night that we tried to introduce the book of First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Doctrine is emphasized over and again. Sound doctrine. The word sound comes from a word where we get the word hygiene from. Healthy. Healthy doctrine will produce a healthy believer. It will help you in your walk in development with the Lord to know what the Word of God has to say. A steady diet of that. Now, there's a charge involved here. The Bible says that thou mightest charge some. You remember that word some used over and again. Now, even here in chapter number 1, look at verse number 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia that thou mightest charge some. That they teach no other doctrine. Watch verse 6. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Down in verse number 19, the Bible says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And so here there's a charge involved. This word charge comes from a word that, that, that speaks of a command. 
As a matter of fact, it's translated such in verse number 5, same word. It means to declare, to herald. means to make it known. Timothy, make it clear. There's a charge involved. And there will be a storm coming. You go to straightening out doctrinal error. And some there's a storm on the way. I was talking to Brother Rick Saferit uh, June, uh, a year ago, be a year and a half ago now, in his son's home. And we were talking about expository preaching, of which I'm a proponent. I, don't, I know that's not the only kind of preaching that can be done, but I'm for it. God gave us uh, a Bible with 66 books. I was asked one time why I preached through books of the Bible. That's all God gave us. And why I preach verse by verse. You mentioned that verse by verse teaching. I'm for that verse by verse, verse, by verse business. And my response to that question was because that's how God gave it to us. Why would we not want to know more of what God had to say? If he said it, let's find out what he said. And a lot of times, if you've got false doctrine set around, crazy ideas about Scripture, and you go to verse-by-verse preaching, you're going to deal with false doctrine if it's sitting on the pew. You go ahead and mark it down, son. It, that won't set well with the flesh. Never has. There's a calling involved here when he says, teach no other doctrine. He's calling people to what's right. I said this recently to a younger brother in the faith who's in the pastorate. We were talking about, and Brother Ronnie, I think maybe you and I touched on this too a few weeks back. I remember early on, I, I mentioned recently uh, when I was at, uh, worked at Action years ago and was out at Pleasantdale, it's like I pastored two churches, literally. And there were all kind of questions would come up on the job. Often tongues, the business of tongues came up. So I had to study that out early on. And... And, and I've said this when I, uh, to others through the years, but um, when I studied that, I studied it with an attitude of suspense. My mind wasn't made up about anything. My home church didn't teach me anything about it. And I studied that out on my own through prayer and the study of Scripture. But I want to say this. If the Pentecostals were right, I'd hunt me a church and a pastor tonight. If they were right, I'd hunt me a church and a preacher Sunday. If I felt like they lined up with the Word of God, I'd hunt me out a pastor that I could sit and learn under. If I thought the assemblies of God were right, I'd go hunt me a preacher. Now, I wouldn't go hunt me a church that played games and shot at a basketball goal every Wednesday night. I'd go hunt me a preacher that would disciple me. I've got some friends who are Methodist. I have one friend who's, who has a Methodist charge with about four churches under his oversight. He preaches at all four of them. If I thought the Methodists were right, I'd go hunt me a Methodist preacher in a Methodist church. I would. He says, Timothy, he said, charge them, command them, declare unto them 
Make it clear, make it known that they are to teach no other doctrine. Bible doctrine is needed doctrine. You say doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine do matter. It all matters. Some of these younger guys wear a cap that says theology matters. Theology does matter. Doctrine does matter. The Word of God does matter. It's paramount. There's only two or three of you men here tonight that was here the Friday night in June of 2012 when I was asked, I think I can better define it now, but I was asked about what meant the most to me, and I said preaching. I'll put more emphasis on preaching. As a matter of fact, I followed it up and said even through the week, because another question was asked about my preaching outside the pulpit. I tend to one rather get my Bible and get in that pickup truck and drive 30 minutes to 13 hours, whatever it is, and preach the Word of God and perhaps see somebody saved and for sure see somebody helped in the faith than sit around watching the TV all night. Mentioning Methodist, if I were asked to preach in a Methodist church this coming Sunday, I'm not shunning the text because they got a different label on the front. If it says it, I'm going to do my dead level best to say it my feeble way. Now, doctrine matters. There's a charge involved. There's a calling involved. Call them to it, Timothy. That's what will help the false doctrine. Go in there. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And... Um, and you know what's said, and I'm going to, I want to give you a, a thought or two here. It might help you in your Bible study. Sometimes you hear people say something like this. Well, now that's just your interpretation on that. That makes me want to puke. It really does. That we would handle the Word of God so flippantly. That's just your interpretation on that, preacher. The Bible says, I was quoting or reading from 2 Timothy a bit, ago, a bit ago. The Bible says in that very book of 2 Peter is where I was reading from. The Bible says in that very book that the scriptures are of no private interpretation. In other words, you can't read of the virgin birth of Christ and make anything other than it is the virgin birth of Christ that's dealt with. You can't come up with anything other than the bodily resurrection of Christ. I wrote down just a couple of examples while I was thinking, trying to think this through today. Of course, the essentials of the faith, as old-timers have through the years, many of them dead and gone and in the city of God tonight. And the essentials of the faith, may there be unity, always unity. And the essentials of the faith. There is stated or specific revelation. Let me give you just a simple illustration of this. The very first verse of your Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That is a specific revelation. There is no argument. There are no arguments, plural. God created the heavens 
the heaven and the earth. God did that. We don't believe in the survival of the fittest, theory of evolution or the Big Bang Theory. Some said, well, there was a big bang. God said it, and bang, there it was. We don't even believe in that. God just said it. He created it. It's what the Bible said. You don't have to add to that. But then there is, at least what I call, systematic revelation. That's where there are a number of pieces throughout Scripture that go together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to give you the overview or the overall view of what Scripture is teaching. And one of them we're celebrating this time of the year. Somebody said the other day, it was telling me, trying to straighten me out about us uh, celebrating uh, Christmas on December the 25th. And he said, you know that happened in September. I said, well, to be more specific, I believe it happened in April of the year. But who gives a flip? We celebrate it every Sunday at charity. As we do the resurrection and the fact that he's coming again for his church, Brother Johnny, I'm celebrating that tonight. Bless God, I'm living in that hope right now. But listen to this systematic revelation. I'm just going to give you four, three or four verses. Genesis 3.15 is the first. It's what we call the protevangelum or protevangelum, however you choose to pronounce it. I've heard scholars in conferences pronounce it both ways. Pronounce it any way you want to. If you want the redneck version of it, I'll give you that after the service. It is the first prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. It's Genesis 3.15. God said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Not his seed, but her seed. You never read of that again in all of Scripture. Her seed. You read of Abraham's seed. You read of David's seed. You read of Jacob's seed. You read of other men's, uh, men and their seed. The only time you ever read about the woman's seed is right here. Genesis 3.15. It's a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. Isaiah 7.14 gives us another picture to it. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew 1.21, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, there have been people down through the years. Look with me at John chapter number 1. Do you know there are people, even in Baptist churches, I could call some Baptist church names that I'm familiar with, where there have been people that did not believe, some of them leaders in churches that did not or do not believe that Jesus is God. They take a verse over here and a verse over there. It's about like this business of soul sleep. Some believe that when, when a believer dies, he just goes to sleep. And he's going to stay out there in the grave until Jesus comes and wakes him up. That's not taught in Scripture. When the Bible refers to sleep as death for the believer, it's always in reference to the body. It's never in reference to the soul or the inner man. Watch this. Christ's hypostatic union. We celebrate that this time of the year. Watch John 1, I've mentioned to you John and the divisions of John in our looking to the life of Christ, mentioned it even this past Sunday. John chapter number 1, there's a declaration of Christ and his person, his deity and his humanity. 
Look at John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Who is the Word? It's none other than Christ. He is the Logos. He is the Word of God. He is God who created. He was there in the beginning. Look at verse number 14. John said about him, And the Word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll bring this to a close. We'll take it a little farther next Wednesday. He said, Timothy, there's a storm to be weathered. The place of the storm is Ephesus. That's the place for Timothy. The particulars of the storm. Uh, there's the errors that have been propagated in the church body. The errors. There's a charge involved. This false teaching that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. There's a charge involved. A calling involved. And uh, then he talks about in verse number 4. And I'll stop with this. Part of that. The errors propagated in the church body. Verse number 3. False doctrine. Verse number 3. Fables and endless genealogies. Verse number 4. He writes, neither give heed to fables. You wouldn't think that'd make its way into the Baptist church, would you? And endless genealogies, which minister what? Questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do fables. Inventions of the mind. Inventions of the mind. Imaginations of the mind. Made up stuff. Stuff that fits a movement. And we pull it because somebody told us it was that way. We hang on to it and then we preach it with no Bible. Fables. A.T. Robertson in his word pictures from the New Testament gives us the word that, it's, uh, that this word comes from. And this is what he wrote. And I quote, he said, this word refers to all forms of false and fictional teaching or doctrine. It means the false ideas and speculations of men about God and Christ and the teachings of God's word. The doctrines of men, he went on to write, are only speculations, fables, narratives, stories, fictions, and falsehoods. But now if somebody said it, and we believe it for some reason, he mentions endless genealogies. These genealogies uh, would refer to uh, someone in their heritage and probably in context, it was more of a Jewish sort that would congregate there in Ephesus. People who took pride in who they are and where they come from and who they desired to be known as. And he said, this is an endless thing. Look at the end of verse number 4 and we'll stop and pick right back up here next Wednesday, Lord willing. He said in the end of verse number 4, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. False doctrine, the fables, the endless genealogies, they minister questions, divisions, confusions. And here's the unscriptural end of it all, rather than godly edifying. We won't get to it tonight. But 1 Timothy is one of the places in Scripture where we get a good look, a clear look at what a church is to be. It's not the only place in Scripture, but it is one of the places in Scripture. 
where we get a clear view of what a church ought to be and included in the church gathering ought to be godly edifying if we had a church chapter it would just about have to be Ephesians 4 wouldn't it God gave some apostles and prophets and and uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the ministry for the work of edifying till we all come in the unity of the faith so much other it says there in Ephesians chapter number four minister questions rather than godly edifying anything that would do that is to be avoided in a local church let's stand with this miss